This is a Partially Examined Life episode preview. You can purchase the full episode individually or support the podcast to get all of our episodes. Review your options at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support. You're listening to the Partially Examined Life, a philosophy podcast by some guys who at one point set on doing philosophy for a living, but then thought better of it. Our question for episode 51 is something like, what is language? And we read a few things. Ferdinand de Saussure's Course in General Linguistics, for, published in 1916, part one and part two, chapter four. Claude Lévi-Strauss's The Structural Study of Myth from 1955. And Jacques Derrida's essay, Structure, Sign, and Play in the Discourse of the Human Sciences from 1966. You can get links to online versions of all these texts, discussion of this episode, and much, much more at partiallyexaminedlife.com. My name is Mark Linton-Meyer in free play from Madison, Wisconsin. This is Wes Owen in Boston, Massachusetts. This is Dylan Casey, linguistically in Middleton, Wisconsin. This is Derek Varn as a signifier in Seoul, South Korea. You're actually in Seoul, South Korea right now? Oh, no, I'm actually in uh, <laughs> Atlanta, but I'm normally in Seoul, South Korea. Ah, so, Sarah in Seoul, South Korea, a star in Correct. <laughs> the limitations of English. Yeah. And uh, Seth, he got a hold of me a couple of days ago and he's like, oh, I thought it was next Sunday. Oh, man. Can I read all the stuff in two days? You could try. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's brave. Well, it was short enough to read two hours. You read the Derrida in a few hours? I had some trouble with that. Nine pages, right? Uh, it's nine pages that you read over and over and over again. <laughs> If you're a masochist. (laughs) (laughs) Who are you, stranger? C. Derek? I am a uh, poet and university lecturer in um, Seoul, South Korea. I work at Hankook Wede de Hakyo, our Hankook University of Foreign Studies, as a lecturer in American culture, intercultural communications, and English as a second language. Do you lecture in Korean or in English? I lecture in a mixture of both primarily in English. My Korean is not terribly good. A lot of sign language, gestures. Yeah, a lot of which is just me saying I speak very bad Korean. Ah. <laughs> I was going to say, that's a very uh, focused joke there. Yeah. I can say I speak very bad Korean and very good Korean, which is uh, sort of unfortunate since <laughs> that usually leads to conversations. But anyway, I primarily work in linguistics, although that's not my background. My background is poetry and analytic philosophy. And yet you seem to be one of those guys that is chased around the... Uh offensive part of the continental tradition, (laughs) which is what we're (laughs) looking into right now. I am both fascinated by and hostile to postmodernism, but I'm actually hostile to it from like a sympathetic viewpoint. (laughs) I find a lot of the analytic critiques of postmodernity actually kind of flaccid. Because they just don't read, right? They just don't have no tolerance for the style. Yeah, it it seems almost like it's a stylistic, just not dealing with the concepts at hand. To really dig into any kind of um, continental philosophy past Heidegger, you have to deal with structuralism. And I know we barely got West to do this one. (laughs) We did? (laughs) I thought you were against this topic in general. I'm not against it. And I, because I've studied psychoanalysis, I've had to read this Sassur many times and I've read a lot of Lacan. And yes, I can't, I hate Lacan with a passion, but there are some important ideas there. So, yeah. Do you blame Sassur for Lacan? No, I think Saussure did his own thing, and it's very insightful. And I think, you know, the uh, structuralists and post-structuralists 
did their own thing with Susso. They're not just taking it whole cloth or making their modifications. So some would criticize the way they've interpreted or adapted Susser, and then and some will defend that. But Susser himself, I have no problem with. I was not familiar with this story at all. So if you look at a lot of recent continental philosophy, what seems objectionable in the style, what, what I find hard to read, I've been trying to trace sort of where this goes back to. And I know some of it is in Levinas, who talks about the other, with, you know, a capital O. And some of it is back to Heidegger and folks that we've read already. But Saussure gets a lot of this as well. And he's not somebody that was even offered to me as an option in grad school, because it seems like this particular strain, like I, I listened to part of a uh, iTunes U lecture series from uh, Yale to prep for this, a couple lectures by an English prof. I'll link to this on the website as just part of a criticism of literature, right? So it seems a lot of uh, people that are not in philosophy read this stuff. And postmodernism had a relatively short, at least by the time we got to grad school, it was already like very much coming out of favor. But in other departments, this stuff is still very top of mind. Yes, yeah, sociology departments as well. Oh, yeah. When I was getting my master's of fine arts and poetry, I had to read all this almost in every class. That's how I became familiar with it actually, was just having to go through and read all the continental philosophers as if it was literary criticism. And that includes Lacan and people who really aren't doing anything related to literary criticism. So they just get used that way. Right. Dylan, did you have any of this stuff? I'd read some Derrida in undergrad, but never read any Saussure, never even heard of the guy. Yeah. Well, I mean, Derrida sort of has a wide enough scope that any overview philosophy course, you should do hopefully some Derrida, or at least he gets to mention, even if only to be dismissed as a fad or something like that. But, and this is not, should not be considered sort of the Derrida episode. We're not going to talk about deconstruction. This is really just about this particular story where Saussure is just a linguist. And in fact, he's not even, from what I read on Wikipedia anyway, his approach to linguistics has largely been discredited itself, that Chomsky and people following Chomsky just think that it's not an adequate system for dealing with the whole of what you want to do with linguistics. But I know almost nothing about that. This certainly had no overlap with what I had in my undergrad linguistics course. But in any case, just the idea of the relationship between thought and language or something that he came up with, extremely influential and got generalized by guys like Levi-Strauss into this thing called structuralism, which then apparently was very hip for about two years. And then this exact uh, Jacques Derrida essay, he actually presented at a conference in 1966 in Baltimore that was supposed to sort of coronate Levi-Strauss. And Levi-Strauss was, was at it. And even though this essay seems like a lot of it, I mean, it's talking about Levi-Strauss and he's even quotes Levi-Strauss a lot to make his own points, but it was perceived and sort of historically came down to as the dethroning of the <laughs> Levi-Strauss and the structuralist, uh, strictly structuralist approach, right? Yeah, it was sort of a big flip because this conference at Jump Tompkins was supposed to bring it all together. It was really the first introduction to structuralism in the United States in a big way. And when it happened, this essay just sort of blew it out of water as soon as it began. Structuralism actually really comes back into importance in American continental theory through Marxism, because you have a lot of French Marxists who are highly influenced by structuralism as a sort of counter tradition to postmodernism, but it pretty much started dead in the water in the United States. Mm -hmm. And yes, linguistically, it's sort of discredited for two reasons. One is Chomsky's natural grammar, and the other is the idea that the structure of language produces thought itself has largely been abandoned. There's a Stephen Pinker book about it, which is itself controversial, but has pretty much 
the given thing for most linguists I know is that language and thought are not exactly coterminous. And so language does not just generate thought. And Saussure sort of predicated that thought was almost a byproduct of language. We want to make sure that we don't get completely lost in the first of these three texts. So maybe we should give a little more detailed overview of the three and then jump into some of the specifics. I was going to make two pleas along those regards. To the extent that the Derrida is a kind of uh, critique of the Saussure and Levi-Strauss, maybe we could really make sure we try to articulate what they're saying before we try to mm-hmm. say that they're wrong, or at least <laughs> say that Derrida says they're wrong. And then right. as a little bit of a, not an aside, but I don't know enough about the naming convention in the history of philosophy. I'm wondering if in the terms of structuralism that Derek, you've heard of, or maybe you guys have heard of, the way it's used in uh, philosophy of science for like structural realism. I mean, there's things about the way it's used there that resonate with what I hear out of the Saussure, but I didn't know if there was any sort of principle cross-fertilization. You know, I actually looked a little bit at structural realism just because when I was doing secondary literature research for this. Do you want to say what that is in philosophy of science? Well, I mean, it's going to be a lot like the Saussure in that you're going to say that what you find out are differences in relations in the world. But the big deal is that you're going to say that those differences that you find, even if you call them by variety of names, point to something that's real in the world. So it's about the status of scientific objects or really models. So when we talk about exactly. an atom, for instance, the question is, do we naively think there's such a thing that looks just like the atom? And of course not. But that doesn't lead us to a complete skepticism about entities called atoms. We just yes. think of them as having, it's the structural, it's the relations that they provide us with that we can think of as real regardless of, is that the, yes, and, that the best way of putting it? But it's. Yeah, and so what you come down to is trying to, rather than getting in a conflict about whether or not atoms actually exist, you insist that your scientific enterprise does get at the world and at real things and that you learn real things about the world. And what you end up saying is you learn some structural things, so to speak. Yeah. So whatever the terms of the relations end up being or looking like, if that's even meaningful, we know that the relations are something of which we have knowledge. The terms of those relations could vary as we like, but it's that structural thing. It's those relationships that are the constant thing that we gain knowledge of. Yes. And it's out of there that you would begin speaking about things like meaning. And the controversies are going to be things like whether your terminology refers or not and what it refers to exactly. And I, you know, I see hints of that in here between the Saussure and the Levi-Strauss, the way Levi-Strauss does the analysis of the mythology and uses that to say, well, the structure that's there, the thing that's real that you learn that's true and eternal, maybe that's saying it too strongly, comes out of that structural analysis and the kind of comparative difference. Yeah, I think it's related because the value of signs is going to depend on every other sign within the system, right? Yeah. So it's largely relational. or That's not exactly accurate the way I put it, actually, because he does end up saying that there's a positive. But maybe we should back up and, yeah. and let's get at his basic theory. I think, I mean, you gave the key point in characterizing his system. What he's reacting to is that linguists before him were just looking seemingly at historical changes in language, right? Looking how Latin 
relates to French and trying to say things about that. So his big critique, Saussure's, and this 1916 book was actually put together after his death by a bunch of his students. So it's actually just their lecture notes on him. And he was preaching that people should draw a very sharp distinction between this history of the language, which he called, what, a diachronic explanation? Yeah, diachronic explanation or parole. Yeah. And then uh, a synchronic explanation, which is looking at just an analysis of the language at a time. You can think of, all right, well, if we're going to forget about how the language got this way, well, we could look at the parts of speech as we use them now. We could look at the syntax in this particular language at this particular time. What is the subject verb ordering and stuff like that? So there's a lot of things that should strike us as not that strange. I mean, can you can you characterize before we sort of give what's philosophically weird about this? What else, Derek? It seems like you're more familiar with this book as a whole. There's a lot of interesting stuff in it when you really dig into it. Particularly the idea is that if you follow this out, that thoughts are actually a product of particular structures outside of time. And other thinkers do more with this philosophically, because Saussure wasn't really concerned about philosophy. If anything, actually, he was sort of opposed to it. He wanted to sort of deontologize and de-epistemologize the discussion of language, as well as sort of, you know, make it more than just the study of etymology or whatever. People like Althusser and Levi-Strauss sort of run with that, and you see them talking about ahistorical structures and histories without subjects and stuff. So it has some pretty big implications. But I don't think Saussure actually thought of his system that way. I think he was just primarily concerned with figuring out what a sign and signifier was. Yeah. That's a much more complicated question than it seems. We should say what signifier and signified are and why he's making that distinction. One of his motivations for doing this is he's objecting to the idea that it's sort of a common sense idea of language where we have a bunch of words and we came up with those words because there are a bunch of things in the world that we need to name. So that's precisely what he's objecting to. First of all, we don't get the simple relationship between a word and a thing, right? We come up with this new way of thinking about what a sign is. Yeah. A sign is this, consists of a a signifier and signified, where the signifier is what he calls a sound image, and then the signified is a concept, basically. Right. So the signifier, the sound tree. The signifier isn't just the particular sound any person makes when they say tree. That's why he calls it sound image, right? Tree is something that sounds slightly different every time I say it. And of course, it'll vary across regional dialects. It's not that actual instance. So you want to think of that as sort of a schema. Whatever schema allows us to hear the same thing anytime someone says tree in an infinite number of different ways, that's the sound image and that's the signifier. And that signifies this concept, and together they make up the sign, the thing with a meaning. Right. So you have the sound image and the um, signified, which is a concept. But the concept isn't quite even necessarily the concept of the thing. For example, you can think about the way the term tree may change. So we might talk about a tree as a living thing made of wood outside, or we might talk about a tree as a conceptual map that has branches. And we know that in language through context somehow. And there is a relationship there. The signify-signified relationship is not arbitrary. But as to exactly how that holds together, it's not entirely clear. Yeah, it's arbitrary in the sense that 
we can use any sound we want. Right. Well, in one sense, we can use any sound we want, right, to designate the concept or to signify the concept tree. On the other hand, we can't. If we really want to communicate with others, we're bound by these conventions. So it's arbitrary on a grand scale, but it's not arbitrary for any particular speaker. Yeah, it's not arbitrary in the instance. It's arbitrary in the origination. Yeah, he talks about this in Chapter 2 of Part 1 a lot, invariability and variability of the sign. When I was reading it, I kept on making a note to myself about evolution, and then he started using the word evolution all the time and very explicitly. And it reminded me almost exactly of the problem of speciation and inheritance. Yeah, The invariability has to do with this kind of inheritance that goes from one thing to the other, but there's an arbitrariness about what exactly that is. And then over time, it can change subtly, and you might only see that difference in biological evolution. It might be over many, many generations that you see that, oh, actually, human beings and trees are just distant cousins. That's the implication of Darwin, right? I mean, forget the apes, right? <laughs> yeah, so where the arbitrariness corresponds to mutation. Exactly. Right? Yeah, but that would all be diachronic discussion yes. of language. Like, you have to deal with that, but it's also trying to move away from that because he seems to profoundly think that this misses a lot of the way that language actually functions and how we use it. Because I can talk about the relationship between, say, anima, animus, animal, all relating back to Latin. And so the animus would be the anger I feel, the anima would be what animates me, and the animal will be an animated thing. And we can all see that diachronically, but we're still missing something about the way language is actually functioning. And that would be his primary point. Yeah, so which is to say there's this system, there's the level of, and I'm not sure what the pronunciation is, is it langue? Lang or lang? There's lang, langue, and poro. So, like, lang is the structure, syntax, yeah. semiotics. Parole is like the evolution of language, or the relationship of languages, and langue, uh, French speakers are going to kill me, but langue is like human speech in the instance of using it. So like me talking right now. So you have that sort of tripartite distinction. And langue is not really important. I thought that was parole. See, I had, yeah, yeah. parole. The big distinction is parole and lang. Yeah, where parole is the everyday, the actual speech of human beings. And then there's a sort of a middle level of languages, right? There's English as a language, French as a language, and then Lang, if that's the correct pronunciation. Yeah. Spelled Langue. Uh, is it Langue? <laughs> that's the spelling. I'm just telling the <laughs> listeners. I don't should have looked this up, but it's uh is the most general level where you're talking about what language is in general and it's the system of language and it's something that sort of is common to all different languages, all the different instances of language and, and so that's the proper that's what linguistics is is actually studying, this very general level. That's what you're saying, Derek, with going against the diachronic where you're not just documenting historical changes, but you're you're looking at what language is at this very abstract level. Right. No, I, th I think, though, it has to be referred to a specific language. What I got out of Wikipedia for langue versus parole was langue referring to the abstract system of language that is internalized by a given speech community. It's not language overall in general by everyone, the deep structure of it. It's the structure of this particular language at this time, which is the thing that he's talking about in this book. Right. Well, that's actually, I think, one of the things that distinguishes Sosia from Chomsky. And for example, is Chomsky talks about like universal language structures and Saussure just doesn't really think those exist. 
he thinks that all languages would be like syntax of specific instances of specific communities. Right. He seems to want to get rid of or downplay any kind of teleological notion at all that would go along with a study of linguistics. And the idea would be that there's nothing about our language that is going towards anything in particular. Correct. As opposed to somebody who says our language reveals something about its deep origins in itself that it points back towards some authentic beginning of different kinds. I'm kind of explicitly using a similar kind of discussion and critique that you have of biological evolution about, on the one hand, there's nothing about our speciation that points back towards anything natural in their kinds. Those kinds develop, those kinds are differences, but they aren't anything natural. And it seems to me Saussure would be of that bent. And that would be something like what he means by the arbitrariness of our language. It's founded on difference, yes. Those differences aren't rooted in any natural cleavings of the world. So the way I was taught this is he was trying to deontologize the study of yeah. language. Yes. I don't want to get deep into kind of criticism of that right away, but those differences, while arbitrary, the question will be to the extent of which they're real and which they point to something actual and provide meaning and purchase on the world. So it might be the case that there's something arbitrary about the way in which you separate a tree out from the ground. But it's another question altogether to say that once done, that you've not pointed to anything that's to an actual object, for instance. I think he's actually bracketing that out. The question of the extent to which the real world, whatever that is, is affecting the way the sort of stream of sound and then the conceptual stream that he describes them, the way they get carved up into signs through difference, right, at least on each level. Signs become positive things in themselves, but at the level signifier and signified, each thing has its value simply through its differential relation to other signifiers and other signifieds. And that does sound like, and I think in the, the way that Susser is used, it'll end up seeming as if it implies a kind of relativism, because he's, of course, he's not even talking about objects, right? The signified is the concept. And it seems as if there's just some sort of arbitrary carving up into signs without regard to whether or not there are natural kinds in the world to which signs are related in some way. Although the one thing that he's, I think, certain of is that language isn't simply a system of words that have come about as a way of naming obvious entities in the world. Those entities aren't entities as such until there's a system of language. And the ability to conceptualize those things comes about with language and with a system of differences. They're not simply there beforehand and then language is overlaid on top of it. But that doesn't imply that the world couldn't play a role in the development of this system of differences. Now, I think people who make use of Sasor, some of them will take the relativist line and will say there is no world, let's say, outside of the text, or that it is a completely arbitrary, in the second sense of arbitrary, development. Right. Well, this is where it's important to just remind ourselves that Saussure did not remotely see himself as a philosopher, and his influence on philosophy is almost historical accident. Really, all these questions for him were just methodological. Right. Well, he is talking about thought. So I, I have the quote here. It's uh, This is in part two, chapter four, section one there, second paragraph, linguistic value. Psychologically, setting aside its expression in words, our thought is simply a vague, shapeless mass. Philosophers and linguists have always agreed that if it were not for signs, 
You should be incapable of differentiating any two ideas in a clear and constant way. In itself, thought is like a swirling cloud where no shape is intrinsically determinate. No ideas are established in advance, and nothing is distinct before the introduction of linguistic structure. So that's the key point. And then he goes on to say the same thing is true of sound. So it's not like what is going to count as a word. You could have whistles. You could have multi-syllable thing all be one word. You could have – think of when people try to create alien languages in movies and things. Like that series of clicks and whistles and beeps that R2-D2 or whatever is making. You know, which are the words in there? Yeah. Listen to a foreign language and try and say what are the phonological units in that and it's difficult. So you have this stream A and B and they're each this – amorphous stream and it's only in getting paired up with each other that you actually get units which i think is an ingenious idea he's also saying that the very making of the unit is arbitrary right well i think he's bracketing that question actually i think that he might want to bracket it but he's clearly at least talking about it even if he doesn't want to if you're going to say that about language you it's exactly the same thing that you're talking about when you say i'm going to distinguish the leaf on the tree from the leaf I'm going to distinguish the leg on the chair from the leg or the grain of sand from the bucket of sand. How do I distinguish, pick out the one unit thing out of the whole? And lo and behold, I'll also look at that one unit thing and I'll find another unit thing. And this becomes really important, I think, when he wants to then talk about simples later and make the case, which I'm very sympathetic to, that there are larger wholes that are unbreakable simples that might have structure within them, like a word that has many syllables in it, but it constitutes its own whole. It's that kind of relation between parts and wholes that has to do with both difference, how I distinguish this from that, as well as I constitute a whole in which I make a cleaving that doesn't have attention to a lower level of this is and that. That has ontological consequences written all over it. Thanks for listening to this episode preview. You can purchase the full episode at our store page, get it by supporting us through Patreon, or become a partially examined life citizen. We provide supporters with ad-free access to our full catalog, including new exclusive content. Configure our citizen feed to get it all beamed straight to your Apple or Android device. Learn more at partiallyexaminedlife.com support.